Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today we are talking with Stan Clausen, a good friend for a long time. He's an artist. He's a filmmaker. He is a Burning Man aficionado. We will get into that. He is a professor. He was the student body president back in high school, which I think is pretty important too. But Stan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's good to see you again. How did I not mention your mustache when I was introducing you? The best mustache we've ever had on the show by far. Well, thank you. Uh, that means a lot. I, I grew it for this show. I want you to know. It took me a long time, a lot of cultivation. It's like a bonsai tree. It doesn't just happen overnight. You know, it's a... Uh... What is a long time? Seriously, like how long does it take you to grow that mustache? I think it takes me probably longer than some people because I just don't have that really thick hair like you do. I don't have that luscious Waddell locks. Um, so it takes me, I think this has taken me about two months. And, and uh, that's there's a lot of patience there. But I love it. And, and this actually, the first time I ever grew a mustache, uh and and decided to turn it into a handlebar was about 10 years ago and really it came from just being lazy and at some point somebody said you know you could probably put wax in that thing and have a pretty decent handlebar so i had to track down wax and i found wild bill's triple x mustache wax and i don't know if you can still find that you had to get it on etsy and they sent it to me. I put it in and yeah, the rest is the rest, as they say, is history. So you weren't going for a particular look when you developed this mustache? Not at all. No, I was just happy to have facial hair at that point in my life because it took me forever to get anything other than the uh, the shaggy patch. Right. Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. I could never I could never get facial hair. And that was always I don't know. I always felt sort of robbed follically robbed and so when i could finally get it and when this happened it was like whoa this is actually this is a thing and so i i don't know i just i've just sort of um stayed on the mustache train sometimes i cut it and then i feel really bad and so i grow it back and then i get tired of it and i cut it so it's a process it's a very love-hate relationship but i do you get the when people are like oh it, it's that guy you know is it is it that guy in the wheelchair or is it that guy with the handlebar mustache? I don't know. I Sometimes they'll bring up the mustache. A lot of times they'll bring up the eyebrows. I get that a lot. I don't know what, what that's all about. Um, maybe I have very expressive eyebrows. Um, but yeah, I'll get the, the guy in the chair, um, the guy with the mustache, the guy with the voice, the guy who sounds like putty from Seinfeld or the latest is is the guy who looks like David Harbour so uh, I had I had to you have to explain my ignorance here exactly I had to actually look at well, I, I was aware of who he was but I was like David Harbour and they're like you know the sheriff from Stranger Things and I went oh okay and I don't really watch Stranger Things but I get I get that a lot they're like oh you look like you look like David Harbour and now he's been in a few other things um, and so I'm okay with that. My mom thinks I, my mom thinks I look like, uh, Ted Cruz. Well, you definitely have a better haircut. So, yeah, but I get weird things. I've, I've had my, maybe mostly from my mom, I guess. I don't mean to paint a, a bad picture of my mom. I love her dearly, but she, they, they think I look like Ted Cruz. They think I look like Ricky Gervais. Um, I'm not saying that he's unhandsome, but you know, come on. You, you, you want to get the, oh, you look like George Clooney. Uh, you look like um, um, Brad Pitt. The, yeah, Brad Pitt, Chris Helmsworth, or or Chris Waddell, right? I want those kinds of compliments. That's, that's what I need. Does this get to be an artistic expression? I mean, you've been an artistic guy for a long time. Yeah. Does the mustache kind of come together and say, this is an expression of who I am and what I do. I sometimes wonder if, if, um, if that's the case. 
Um, I, I like to be a little different. I've always been different. I've never really fit into any mold. And so, you know, for me to, to just rock the mustache, I feel like that's just my way of just doing something. And I also feel like my face looks better with it on. And when I, when I get rid of it, it actually, I don't know, it makes my face look weird. And maybe that's because I've had it for so long. It makes my mouth look small for some reason. Isn't it weird how we perseverate on those, on those facial things that nobody else would recognize, but it's like, wow, yeah. I mean, if I don't have a mustache on, it's really, it's, it's pretty scary. You know, it's a lot like when, when you meet somebody and they're wearing their face mask during the pandemic, you know? And then they take the mask off. And you're like, whoa, that I that did not I did not see that coming. And not in a bad way. It just it's like, oh, you think in your mind something works and then uh, it, it doesn't. So I'm really throwing shade on on looks tonight. I don't mean to do that at all, by the way. I, I you know, I'm I'm leading you down this path. So I apologized. Yes. He's so judgmental. That's Stan Clausen. He's He's an awful human being. Once you get a mustache, then you're looking down on everybody else is really what it comes down to. Oh, I, I wish. I wish. But I've seen some very glorious mustaches that I aspire. I aspire uh, to have that kind of uh, to have that kind of furry lip. So I don't know. We're talking a lot about the mustache. We're the talking a lot about the mustache. And and you know what? I have I have a follow up to that because you're talking about the ones that you aspire to. Yeah. Do, do you have do you have a top few mustaches? Is it like the Tom Selleck? Is it? Yeah, I mean, are you a pencil thing guy? Yeah, like the John Waters. Not so much a John Waters. I I would say. I mean, I think we all. Um, I think we all see those mustaches that we kind of admire. Um, the Selleck is is a classic. I mean, you can't go wrong with Magnum PI. I mean, it's it's one of the best. Um, I mean, if if we're talking about the Everest of mustaches, probably Sam Elliott. How can you go wrong? And and the mustache works with the voice and yeah, the way he talks, everything he does. It's just it's there. So maybe that's what I aspire to. But his isn't a handlebar. It's just this this really rugged, bushy Western mustache. It's fantastic. It kind of hangs off and it's all white now. And I mean, this is the Coors guy. So this is, this is the way you have to look if you're going to pitch Coors beer, I think is what it comes down to. I guess so. That's true. Yeah. I didn't think about that. A future, a future in, in, in slinging alcohol. Hmm. Okay. I'll think about that. Get some headshots. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, so one of the things that that you worked on a while ago, and this is a complete departure from the mustache, was with Jeff Rosenbluth, you did 28 sports in 28 minutes called Continue. And you were the director of this. So what was the impetus behind that? And actually, what did it what did it do? I mean, Continue was one of my one of my fondest memories. It was it was uh um you know the idea the idea really started when i first visited uh jeff rosenbluth who's my spinal cord physician physiatrist and i think i went in uh to an appointment to, to just a, a basic checkup and uh he was the new doctor he had just um replaced the the old um physiatrist up at the university of utah hospital and so I went in and, you know, we, we had the checkup and he asked me, you know, what I did for a living. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I'm getting into video production. I was pretty early on in my in my career um, in doing production. And he said, oh, well, that's, you know, it's really interesting because I'm kind of into video, too. And uh, uh, when you're done, you should uh, I'll, I'll, I'll show you my editing setup. And I thought that was kind of strange because usually the doctor comes in and then they sort of leave. And that's about all you get. Right. Um, but with, with Dr. Rosenbluth, with Jeff, uh, yeah, he invited me to his office and he had, you know, these monitors and this editing, this, this like digital editing, uh, station. And I said, yeah, that's great. I said, it would be, you know, and I think we started to talk about, you know, doing a collaboration. I remember leaving thinking that was the strangest, 
uh, doctor patient uh, encounter I'd ever experienced. And, uh, and then the next thing I know, we were, we were having conversations and we said, you know, it'd be really interesting. Like we should, we should really make um, something for rehab patients, for, for those who are in, you know, who've just had a spinal cord injury, um, something that they can watch um, that gives them a sense of uh, what, what's available to them. And so we, we conceived of the idea of what would be continue. And we wanted just a really nice video that showcased all of the adaptive uh, sports and, and recreation that was available to uh, individuals with spinal cord injury. That started in about 2003. So we worked on that and finished that in 2009. So wow. for that long, we were taking our time, trying to figure out what was going on. Um, technology even advanced as we were we were actually filming it to the point where now we were we were exploring HD uh, and and different cameras, and so we went all across Utah. Uh, I think the only there were only a couple of out of state activities. One of them scuba diving, uh, and it was it was really important that we we told that story and and. Uh, that video then went to uh, rehab centers all across the United States, and and I think it was, it was a really great opportunity to to showcase that uh, and, and that comprehensively. So a lot of times when you see adaptive um, sports or adaptive recreation films, um, it's usually just one activity. It's a, it's a skiing film or it's somebody doing something. It's surfing. Um, but we actually did 28 activities and we really tried to string it together in a way that was, um, uh, that looked good, that felt good, that had sort of this beautiful continuous flow through it. And, uh, and I, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of it. You were in it I was uh, in. and several other people were in it. And, and so it's a great time capsule also looking back on it to, to think about, um, I'll be able to look back at all the people who were a tremendous influence on me and 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 my life a after my spinal cord injury and so that film is always going to be this this um this beautiful piece that i i'm, I'm really proud of and and uh we had talked about a sequel and what i had wanted to do was a sequel that focuses more on um higher injury levels so uh, adaptive recreation for higher injury levels, because I think that's a population that, you know, often <clears throat> doesn't really um, get addressed in, in the sporting world. And yet there are so many great opportunities coming up. And so part of that is uh, also a document of the technology that is becoming available um, to, uh, you know, different uh, mobilities. Um, and, and I think it's really exciting that uh, more and more people have the technology to get out and, and recreate and, and play sport. Well, it's, I mean, you're hitting on a lot of different things as you're talking about, right? So 28 sports, 28 minutes, you shot it mostly in Utah. If people watch television, they see a lot of Utah in the commercials, right? Because it is one of the most spectacular backdrops. You had spectacular backdrops but then also we're talking about the rehab center at the University of Utah, which is an, an unknown gem in some ways. I mean, it is on par with Shepard and with Craig, and it is one of the most progressive units in, in the world. But when you went through, how much did you know about sport, right? I mean, you had a, a rappelling accident, right? How much did you know about what you might be able to do right well you know it's it's interesting because i didn't know much about disability when i was injured uh so when i you know, i was 20 years old i fell in a in a rock climbing accident i fell um about 49 feet landed on my back and uh you know complete um spinal cord injury uh, at the t9 10 level which is also the name of my production company noticed that yes and when when they they brought me brought me to in icu uh and told me i was paralyzed i mean my first 
thought was, well, you know, what, is, what, are, what do I think about disability? You know, what are my thoughts about um, paralysis and disability? Now, a year earlier, Christopher Reeve uh, had been paralyzed. So I was very aware of paralysis, um, but I didn't really have a lot of exposure. And I would say a lot of positive exposure to the world of disability. Um, it was in many ways uh, unknown and kind of taboo. Um, and, and so I wouldn't say that I had a really great opinion of, of disability. But immediately, I, I knew that I needed to change that myself. I needed to, um, I needed to recontextualize what, what disability meant. And so part of that was trying to think about, well, what, what are the opportunities available to, to people with disabilities? You know, and I, 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 do you just, you know, do you just wheel around and, you know, with a blanket over your legs and just kind of exist? I didn't know. I really didn't know. Which is the position that you're, ma you're making this film for people who are in the same position that you were, right? Like, okay, everything, every door is closed to me. And you're like, no, doors are exactly, open, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a life-changing thing. And so the, your first thought is what, what can I do? What, what, can, what am I still able to do? And so I remember um, there was one moment that was really powerful. And that was, I, I, I was already on the rehab floor and I was at LDS hospital. And I remember that a man from the National Ability Center, um, whose name was Mark Stevens. And Mark Stevens um, had paralysis and he worked for the National Ability Center. And he would go around and talk about what the National Ability Center was and what activities they provided. And so I remember he came to, to do a little in-service at the hospital, but I was so exhausted that day. I just had, you know, a, a pretty intensive um, rehab session. And so I went back to my room. I'm like, I, I, I just can't do it. I, I, I'm so exhausted, but, but maybe I can meet with him some other time. And so I took a nap. Mark Stevens waited around until I was ready to wake up. And then he came in. And he showed me this VHS video about the National Ability Center and what they did. And it just was like a light went off. It was, it was, it was, it was a glimpse into my new world. It was a glimpse in a possibility. And, uh, and, and the fact that he took the time to stick around to relay that information. And the information is power. And I will, I will never forget that. He has since passed, but he was actually involved in my first outing with the National Ability Center. And that was learning to, to water ski. And he was the boat driver. And so I have a, he, he really was that early mentor and really my first introduction to the world of adaptive recreation. So we just wanted to make a better video and make it more um, inclusive of everything that was available. Um, and obviously that we missed some things, you know, we didn't include things like fencing or, um, you know, there's, there's certainly a number of things that are, that people are doing now, but, but we wanted to get the basics. And, and it was also important that we didn't just focus on team sport or elite sport, because we know that a lot of people um, may not be elite athletes, right? There might be people who just are interested in getting out and riding a bike or uh, getting out and fishing, right? So, um, so we really wanted it to, to cover multiple um, aspects of, of sport and recreation and leisure. And it'd be really appropriate if you did a sequel because the University of Utah has been on the cutting edge, right? I mean, they have a ski that allows super high quads. I mean, you talked about like Christopher Reeve, like Christopher Reeve, if he were still around, could ski in this ski with almost no mobility. I mean, it goes all the way up to like what they call sip and puff Absolutely. wheelchairs, right? Where yep. it's you're just sucking air in basically in like a straw and blowing it out to 
maneuver the chair, that's a chair. This is a ski that you're out in the elements and not only a ski, but they have a sailboat too, right? So it would be really exciting to see, because some of it for me, and I don't know if this is for you, is, is the surprise, the unexpected, right? That they see you or they see somebody who's in a sip and puff wheelchair and suddenly that person is the best sailor on the lake because that person knows how to sail, but doesn't have any, you know, physical dexterity at all, really, but but be, through the technology has the ability to do it. it is, is it going to happen? Are you going to do the sequel? We, you know, we keep talking about it. So who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe when the anniversary hits, maybe in 2028, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. Because the technology has changed a lot since, uh, you know, since the video came out. Not a lot. I mean, you know, there are certain things about, you know, some of the off-road cycles and, and the monoskis that are similar, even though the technology has changed. And I remember even talking to Muffy Davis about this. She's like, yeah, some of the equipment in that video is a little outdated. And I was like, I know, I know, but a swimming pool is a swimming pool, right? So, um, but this is an opportunity to really focus more on, on showcasing that, that technology. And, and what you bring up is really interesting because I think about how important technology is in the lives of people with paralysis, right? Um, you've certainly seen technology change over the course of your 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 life in a chair. I have, um, and and I think about just how much more mobile or less mobile I am, depending on how that technology is designed to work, right? Thinking about the old aluminum chairs um, versus the titaniums that are coming out now. Um, you know, there are there are changes in technology that really allow people to be more functional. And, and I think talking about that in the context of a wheelchair is really important because uh, I certainly wheel better when I have better equipment, right? And then when we talk about the Tetra ski, which is that sip and puff or, or joystick controlled ski, that the University of Utah developed, uh, that technology can now create independence uh, for an entire group of people who couldn't even think about getting on the ski hill until now. And they're able to do it. And not only are they able to do it, this isn't just a, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that, oh, isn't that great that they can do that thing? Which I, I can't stand the charity model, right? That that drives me up the wall. No, they're competing. So last March, they, they had their first competition. They need to get down the hill. And guess what? If their time isn't as good as somebody else, they don't place. And I love that because what it what it is saying is, yes, we have not created the tools for you to actually function. So do it. Go do it. Um, this isn't... This isn't just a a, a gimme. Um, this is this is actually uh, independence and, and competition, legit competition uh, that's never been seen before. Well, I mean, so much of what you're talking about is what we're hoping for as human beings in general, right? It becomes more uh, necessary the higher, the more profound the injury, the technology can help. But but we're all looking for that opportunity. To perform that opportunity to struggle, that opportunity to be successful, that opportunity to effectively be human, and the technology is enabling these people. Where do you see that going? Because in some ways, it's it's kind of you know it kind of uh, you know it, it's gone into a direction that I didn't think it would go. So then you think the next part, but then for you as a storyteller. What's the story around that, especially looking at the future? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there are many stories. Um, I, I think I think the biggest story is what are humans capable of, right? It always starts there. And I think we always surprise ourselves. But then when you start thinking about the technology and what is being done to help us advance, to move, to move that needle forward, right? 
Um, you know, we could look at landing on the moon and, and what was accomplished there through technology and teamwork. So now we're able to bring that down to earth. And I, I have no concept of what technology will do other than I think what we will start to see is more activities and more terrain becoming accessible. Um, and I think you will begin to see that not only uh, in technology that allows people to now go backpacking, to go back country, to go on, the, on these back country terrains, but also potentially to be able to navigate urban environments that aren't that accessible, to be able to navigate stairs, to be able to navigate, um, you know, houses that still have a step. Um, I, I think we're going to start to see that, that demand for that technology that allows people to be as independent as they possibly can be. And then I think as part of that, what I really hope happens is that we are also seeing a system in place that doesn't make that cost prohibitive. And I, and I, and I think right now we're starting to see a lot of great organizations like trails, like, like the National Ability Center, like Wasatch Adaptive Sports. Um, and that's just locally, but, but, you know, of course, nationally, internationally, these organizations that are coming together to provide these opportunities, to provide this technology, to get you independent, to get you out there, to teach you the skills you need so that you can build a foundation and then grow from there. But then it would be great to be able to hop on Amazon and go buy a new bike and have it be affordable with one click, just like everybody else, right? That, that to me is the dream because I think what's happening right now is it's very expensive to have a disability and it's very expensive to be paralyzed. And so what we need to do is to figure out ways where uh, you aren't being financially punished just because you have a disability, right? How do we create that equity in, in sport, in recreation, in adaptation? And then down the road, I mean, I'm also thinking about universal design and the implications of how do we just create more accessible spaces so that it isn't dependent on uh, technology to have to get me in and out of, of a building. It isn't my problem that I have to figure out, right? It is society basically saying, we need to make some systemic changes so that people can get in and out of these buildings, no problem. Look at Star Trek. The enterprise is 100% wheelchair accessible. And if you look at the next generation, they've got these two beautiful ramps that go right down to the captain's chair, fully wheel wheelchair accessible, right? Every door. And we look to Star Trek as the end all be all of where we can go, not only as human beings, but also with technology. It's technology, but it's also, I mean, this is art though too, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is fitting into a space the way that it's supposed to fit. It's supposed to fit our lives. It's supposed to fit our eye too. Is that a challenge or is that a driving force? So now when you talk about art, are you talking about the art of architecture or the art of universal design or are you talking about the art of just technology in general? I mean, I'm talking about all of it, really. I think that that it really is the whole, because, I mean, technology, it's so easy to have the two things being separate, right? Technology is sort of, sort of this, this left brain science, but, but then there has to be that intuitive side, doesn't it? That, that's, that's shaping that science and is looking at nature as well saying, okay, are we, are we creating something new or are we trying to learn from what surrounds us to 
create something that that's better for us based on something that that has a better design just i mean what like i mean you talk about the the golden ratio you talk about a variety of different things i mean you're what the 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 length from your elbow to your to your hand is like the same as your foot right like we're we're put together in a symmetrical kind of way and creating our world that way is both technologically advanced and artistically advanced do you how do you look at the shaping of that within and and your role of shaping it i'm going to try to answer a few of those i i think when we look at and as you were talking about the golden ratio and as you were talking about arm length my first thought was of the vitruvian man right the classic uh da vinci vitruvian man this idea of body and space right and how we navigate through body and space um i i think when it comes to my role if if i can be a voice for change if i can be a voice um whether whether just uh in person or or through film or through teaching or through any type of activity if i could be a vehicle for change that brings more awareness um to disability and, and 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 all all of those components that are included in that um from community to technology hopes dreams interests um I, I think that's where where i will contribute the most um because i think there are a lot of people who have really great ideas and we need to showcase those and we need to highlight those and we need to we need to let people know what's happening not only those individuals who have disabilities but also everybody in their community all of the people who have the power to really make the change so that's where i see myself being being useful um from an artistic standpoint it's interesting because i certainly uh have done a lot of consulting work and have worked with 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 people I mean, you worked with the organizing committee in 2002 right that bring the olympics and the paralympics here yeah absolutely and, and i've and i've worked with sundance and i've worked with even just local organizations to help create um some accessible experiences uh about several months ago i, I worked with the utah arts alliance to help create in a way a wheelchair accessible ball pit for kids and for people to get into um, a work in progress, but who would have ever thought about doing an accessible ball pit area? We, we look at that and we go, oh, well, I guess if you can't jump or you can't, how do you, what, right? It's like, well, there, there should be no reason whatsoever why we can't do that. And it just takes the right people getting together, the, the will, the interest, and then making that a priority. And I think it starts with making things a priority and saying accessibility is a priority. Disability is a priority. And, and when we create inclusivity, that's going to benefit everybody. So as far as how things look, how they function, well, um, I, I think about the idea of how do you make the wheelchair more and more sleek and sexy, right? There's no reason why um, we can't approach wheelchairs like we've approached uh, cars right how do we make them more efficient but how do we make them look sexy how do we make them actually look kind of cool so that might be an advancement that we begin to see where we're actually making lighter and lighter sturdier chairs that showcase more of the individual and still function better and better and better as as they progress with each new version and i think a lot of that just comes from us getting out and being visible one of the things that i i and i don't know if you i don't know if you encounter this at all but you go out and you you often find that you're the only guy who looks like you when you go out to restaurants you don't really see a lot of other right individuals in chairs and why right. is that and and i and i think about that a lot and and i'm sure there are many reasons for that 
But I've always learned and I always made it a priority that I I was going to get out there. I was going to be very public. I wanted to go out and do things publicly. I wasn't going to hide my disability. I wasn't going to, um, you know, stand aside. And that's not to say that that's an easy decision for people. Certainly people have many reasons why they don't want to go out, why they don't want to engage. I mean, we just had a great pandemic where I definitely stayed indoors more than anybody else I knew. Um, but if I can, I, I, I'm always trying to get people to get out because when you engage in the world, the world sees you and that's where ideas happen. And that's where you begin to bounce ideas off of each other, right? You got to be the pinball. You got to pop up, you got to roll out, you got to bounce around things. You got to make some noise. And that's, that's how we begin to advance. And that's how places begin to become more accessible. And that's how technology begins to improve. Uh, and because people are getting out, they're needing to get out. And it, it only takes a chance encounter between two people to suddenly launch um, an adaptive sport or an organization or to create a new piece of technology that will forever change the way people ski down a hill. It's totally true. And you're hitting on some really great stuff there too, like seeing the individual, but also you're hitting on the technology, which continues to change, right? I mean, back, you look at like the old photos of FDR right. and he's in like a wicker chair with the big wheels in front and the small wheels in back, or maybe one wheel and it's furniture as opposed to function necessarily so much of that is about perspective and your job as a filmmaker is is about perspective is about getting that shot that catches somebody's eye so that they see things differently so they suddenly are drawn into the narrative you also went from you know being like six feet tall to like 410 kind of thing you have an entirely different perspective as a, as a result of being in a wheelchair. How much is that perspective something that is an advantage for you and something that you want to communicate? Well, I mean, to start off with, I'm the filmmaker that shoots in all low angles, which is great because it puts everybody in the power position. So everybody seems powerful on screen. So that's, that's the plus side of it. Um, but but honestly, I think, I think there's something to be said about what having a disability and being a filmmaker, filmmaker has allowed me to do. And I think it's, it does start with how we as individuals with disabilities see the world around us. Uh, I'm certainly a changed person because of my disability. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change my accident for the world. Um, what I have learned what I've become as a result of that has made me a person that I, I like a lot more than before my accident. That's not to say I was a bad person before my accident, but I just, I was a person who didn't have a relationship with disability before my accident. And now I do. And that alone is a really powerful thing. So Let's expand that a little bit. Is it, is it just disability? I mean, you were the kind of guy who got along with everybody like in high school kind of thing. And, you, you were outside, but inside, that kind of thing. Did, does this enhance your relationships with, you know, with sort of everybody? Is that what you're saying? I think it did. I mean, I was always, a, I always got along with everybody. I was, I was the kid in high school who I'd go hang out with the stoners. I'd go hang out with the goths. I'd go hang out with the grunge kids. I was with the drama kids. Um, and then I jump over to the, with the journalism kids because I was doing the cartoons for the school newspaper. Um, and then I could go hang with the jocks and I could hang with everybody in between. And that was because I never identified as any one type of, of social group. Well, I think when I was injured, there certainly was uh, this 
this area that I, I had not had a lot of interaction with. And that was, was the disabled community. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, and if I look back on it and, and I'm really real about it. I mean, I did, I did feel very uncomfortable about that community. And I think it was just because of the way I saw people interact with it around me. Um, you didn't talk about it, right? Um, the few times that I had any interaction with disability, it was typically going to a care facility. And so immediately was institutionalized. And so I really had no idea of what disability really was. I mean, you could even say, okay, the difference between, um, you know, a developmental disability versus the physical disability. Well, now as I've learned more and more about, about these worlds and continue to learn about them and, and to continue to learn about visible and invisible disabilities, of which there are many, um, I feel like I, I feel like I have a, a deeper understanding. And I think that understanding allows me to have a bit more empathy and not just for people with disabilities, but I think with people in general, I think it allows me to go, I get, I get, I, I understand what it's like to go through a really difficult thing in life. I mean, I think we, we both do. I know what it's like to experience a challenge that is, is, well, I mean, you could consider almost insurmountable. And so I think that allows me to have a, a, a better connection to human beings because I don't really you know when I think about that low angle the low angle in film looking up puts the character who's on screen in the power position because it puts you almost in the point of view of um, somebody who is below and looking up to and ironically I feel like when I approach people in documentary or anytime I'm working with somebody, they are in the power position. I want to learn from them. It's why I like documentaries so much. And I know there's a lot of ego in the world of filmmaking. It's part of that world that I really, really dislike. And so as a filmmaker, I want, I, I am a learner. I am, I, I am in your capable hands to document this story as truthfully as I can. You're the star. I'm not, I'm just the person who's gonna kind of help put it together and collaborate and hopefully create something that um, will educate, entertain, and maybe move the needle forward. But I think being lower has given me this, this perspective that I, I otherwise maybe wouldn't have had. And I think it has helped me to check myself so that I don't have ego when I go into these situations. I don't feel better than anybody. Um, I, I'm always amazed at, at everybody's story. And that I think has made me a better filmmaker because I can, I can find the most amazing things in human beings even those human beings who feel like they don't have a story to tell. And I, I like that. Well, it, in a lot of ways, it makes you a better storyteller because you're relating to the subject in the way that they want to be seen. It, it's, it's, I was looking at your Instagram earlier today and during, during COVID, you had an Instagram post with Stephen King's The Stand. I don't know if you I don't know if you read the whole thing, but at the beginning, it is those effectively like crazed serial killers who ended up in jail, right? And and you think these are the these are the worst versions of human beings possible, but yet they continue to have those redeeming qualities. I always felt like the king was writing about himself, like each character was actually him. He's like, yeah, yeah. This is all the bad stuff, but don't forget about this thing over here. And, and in, as you were talking about it, I couldn't help but bring the two of them together, this sense of the empathy to be able to portray the subject in, in such a powerful way and in the way that is powerful for them. What's the biggest thing 
that you look at when you're creating a story, when you're when you're following a subject? How does the story build for you? I'm looking for the truth in the story. And I'm looking for, you, you could argue that there is no such thing, but I, I see a lot of filmmakers approach film from a very business-minded perspective, and I understand why that is, because they have to get the funding and they have to sell the tickets. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm interested in the, the truth of the story. And I'm interested in, in specifically representing characters honestly. How does that work with your truth? Are you open enough to be able to ac accept a truth that doesn't necessarily go through your filter? Is that the challenge? I think that's the, that's, that's the, that's the best part. Even if it makes me feel uncomfortable, even, even if it, if it challenges what, what I, because at the end of the day, the reason I do documentary is to learn. Um, I, I, I've never really been a narrative filmmaker because with narrative, with narrative filmmaking, you're writing the story. And so then you get the talent to conform to your already preconceived idea. You've already got it scripted and storyboarded and, and, and mapped out. And for me, it's the exploration. That's the journey. And so I may go into, go into uh, a piece with an idea but the second it changes, uh, it's wonderful because now you sort of get to follow this journey that you could not have conceived of in pre-production. And it is playing out in the most wonderful way. And that's what we need. We don't need the same thing over and over and over and over again, right? We're already seeing that in Hollywood. How many times can you remake Halloween? They're going to try. But when you go out and have somebody tell you their story that is so unique to them, that is so new and so refreshing, you are now getting a new story, an original story, something that you couldn't have thought of. And that's, that for me is, is the best part of the filmmaking journey, when you learn about something. And, and I, I'm sure you could potentially have that happen in narrative. But I think for me, being able to be surprised and being able to have that person lead the dance is, is the best part for me. And, and so, again, you leave ego at the door, you, you go into a shoot, you go into a story, and it either happens or it doesn't happen. I'll give you an example. Um, I, I, I recently shot, uh, a piece for the city of South Salt Lake. They do a mural fest every year. And as I'm shooting the muralists, every once in a while, a muralist will say, let me know if you want me to, to go over and, and paint a certain way or do a, do a certain section for the film. And I, and I look at them, I'm like, well, no, just, just do your thing and I'll capture it or, or I won't capture it. And what it told me is that there are filmmakers out there who do like to manipulate. They're like, well, can you go over and do this and get this thing? And, and that's not the truth for me. That's not the truth for me. And so, and, and again, a lot of documentary filmmakers will say, well, there is no truth in documentary. And sure, I guess that's true. Anytime you point your camera on something, you are making a conscious decision, but I at least try to be a little truthful in my filmmaking. And so when I go out and I shoot muralists, I may spend an hour and a half shooting and I'll never get the shot. So I'll come back the next day and then I'll get the shot. But it'll be a truthful shot. It'll be what really happened. It won't be manipulated. It won't have my input. Um, it will only maybe have my input when it comes to editing in post-production, how I see it fit into the story. But for me, that's important because I, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And the second I force it, there's, there's something that's very disingenuous about 
the entire thing. It, 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 it's almost like a house of cards that just completely comes down. And that's, that's not why I do documentaries. That's not why I filmmake. Is that part of your attraction to the Burning Man art as well? I mean, this is leaving your ego at the door because it, it's so ephemeral, right? I mean, this is something that you work on and work on and work on and then light on fire or, or you know, effectively like right. it, it's over. It, it, right. It's something you've created that was in that moment. Is that the attraction for you? Is that an ultimate truth? That's that's really interesting. Well, the Burning Man art for me was interesting because number one, it is like film uh, in the sense that it it's very much a collaborative process at times. So you have people coming together, they have an idea, they have a blueprint, um, and they work together to create this piece of art for a one week run and then they light it on fire and it is gone it is transitive it is it is not meant to be around that's a that's life well it's also you don't possess the art right it's exactly right you 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 that art no longer belongs to you and i've always been a i've always believed that with film as well i believe that the second a film is released it is no longer yours um i get in i get into I get into discussions about this with people with certain films that have had special editions and that people are like, well, was it better? Was it, was it, was it worse? And I always come back to this idea that the second you release a film, it's no longer yours. You now have that relationship with the film. You remember going to that movie as a kid, it's yours. So when somebody decides to just suddenly change it, Oh, I always get really, I always feel really bad about that because it's almost like, well, that was my thing. That was, you can't, you, you basically like cut up my, my blankie and, and turn it into something else. Right. And, and I think it's okay to release films. I think it's okay to release a film and you're not hundred percent okay with it. I think it's okay to release a piece of art that you're like, okay, it was okay. Because time does interesting things to art. Time does interesting things to film. Films that are considered awful today will down the road become masterpieces, right? Think about a movie like The Shining. The Shining got horrible reviews when it was released. Didn't make much money at all. The same thing with Blade Runner. Blade Runner, people said it was awful. And now both of those films are considered masterpieces. And I think both of those films even made it onto Sight and Sound, which is this Sight and Sound is this big deal in the, the film community of critics. Uh, 100, I think every 10 years they release their, their 100 best films and both of those films are in there. But at the time those films were made, people are just like, this is awful. Um, time does really interesting things. And so I think that's what's, what's phenomenal. Think about something you've done or, you know, uh, and 10 years later, you're like, actually, you know what? That's, that's yeah, aged well, it's okay. It's not too bad. Um, but for but the Burning Man art is interesting because, like, you, you let it go. You have to let it go. It is no longer yours. It is now everybody else's to interact with, to have that experience with, um, to commemorate the death of loved ones, to commemorate uh, a birth, to commemorate, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the temple that they burn at the end of, of the week at Burning Man. And these are really powerful pieces of art that bring people together and then they're gone they're gone and and it, and, it, and I say that it's like life because we we are the same way we 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 are these beautiful pieces of art and we're only around for a, you know a limited amount of time and then we're gone so that idea I think is really fascinating to me and I feel the same way when I talk about film and, and releasing it for me, the best part of film is the journey. The second it's released, I'm thinking about the next thing that I want to do, the next next adventure I want to go on, right? Um, I don't really dwell on the work that's already been done. And it's kind of funny too, because you know, when you bring up something like a continue, I'm like, yeah, I, I can't remember the last time I've seen continue. Um, but I have all of these really, really, really potent memories attached to it. And so, yeah, 
it's uh i think art is powerful in that it can create those feelings and the creator can sort of let all of those interpretations and feelings uh belong to uh everybody else it's interesting that you talk about the memory because it is it is such a visceral thing for us isn't it the way that we connect with art and what art means to us and the artists never necessarily getting where they wanted. I mean, they talk about Picasso putting graffiti effectively on his paintings because he didn't think they were great. And we're like, no, that's pretty amazing, really. But it wasn't what he was going for or the idea of like, you know, often talk about when you're writing a memoir that you write that part and, and that locks in that memory, that that's, that's how it happened in your mind but you're talking about something that's entirely different in the sense of like the audience interacting and how what we take forward what do you take forward because i'd imagine you're a an amalgam of so many ways of like all the art that you've been exposed to but it's all the art that you've been exposed to and yet there needs to be your voice how do you take that forward and emerge your voice out of all of the influences that you've had? Ooh, that's an excellent question. Well, if you ask me, I don't think that I have found my voice yet in, in my art form. Um, <clears throat> maybe other people say that they can tell my work, but uh, I think I'm still finding my voice. And also, I'm okay if I don't have a voice. I, I am okay being the man behind the curtain. I am totally fine with people watching something and really enjoying it uh, and having it move them and they not know who created it. I'm, I'm okay with that. I really, I really am. I'm not in this for celebrity. I'm not in this to make you know, gobs of money. Um, at the end of the day, I just want to create a beautiful piece of work that um, gets people thinking, that shows them something that they've never seen before. Uh, a lot of a lot of the more personal work that I've done really explores this idea of ability and differences, and um, I like that. I. I feel like that is a world that I am about to um, potentially maybe explore a little bit more. And that is something that's always been on my radar, which is this idea of, well, maybe not being the horror film director, but being a director who begins to look at ability and begins to look at the world of disability in a way that we've never seen before. Because let's be really honest, the way that disability is depicted in film needs a lot of work. It is, it is happening. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it, it's been- Why so does it need a lot of work? It needs a lot of work because if we think about um, number one, how the go-to is still to hire non-disabled actors to play disabled roles. And not only do we do that, but it's considered this elevated uh, thing, this way to get potentially uh, an Oscar for your performance, playing somebody who is going through these challenges, that's gonna get you your Oscar, right? Um, Tropic Thunder has a full scene dedicated for that. And, uh, and yet we continue to do that. And, and I've talked with actor friends who say, but yes, but that's, isn't that an opportunity? I mean, shouldn't actors be able to, to um, portray, you know, the roles of, of individuals with disabilities? And I, and, I, and I go, well, I'm not opposed to that. Certainly some of my favorite movies have, you know, if, if I think about a film like My Left Foot, it's an extraordinary film, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. When I was a kid, I saw the movie and then I saw, I was, I was probably, I don't know, uh, 
12 or something like that. And all of a sudden I saw him walk up to get his Oscar. And I was like, huh, well, that's interesting. That's not the guy, but the, I'm not opposed to that. What I'm opposed to is that it's the only thing that's really happening for the most part in Hollywood right now is that we are not. And so where is the truth in the story? You are, you are finding people telling stories that number one, I don't think represent disability in the most truthful of ways. Number two, they're hiring non-disabled actors to portray those roles. And you're hearing an outcry in the disabled community. People saying, why, why do we keep doing this? Why, why are we perpetuating this modern idea of blackface? Is, is this something that uh, is the only way that a film is gonna get sold? And at some point we have to really think about that. So I'd love to see a world where we're hiring disabled actors to play disabled roles. And then yeah, every once in a while we get a non-disabled actor to play the role of somebody who has a disability, that's fine. But until- And can it go the other way though? Yeah. Can you get a disabled actor to, to play the role of, a, you know, uh, that was written for an able-bodied person, right? And they're not going to be able to play an able-bodied person necessarily. Well, but why not? I think, about the, I think about the Super Bowl ad that came out where Christopher Reeve gets up and walks out of his wheelchair and, and it blew everybody away and because, and they use technology um, and digital technology and put his head on somebody else. Um, but there are potentially ways of doing that. The Farrelly brothers who directed uh, uh, Dumb and Dumber and-, and uh, Something about Mary and- Yeah, they, they have a really good friend who um, has been in several of their films. And I think in Kingpin, uh, you see him in his uh, in, in his wheelchair, but then in other roles, he's either driving a car or he's behind a desk. So he's presumably playing non-disabled characters. And I love that. It's like, oh, that's great. Um, you know, we've got Ali Stroker, who is just absolutely incredible. Um, and I hope that she gets bigger parts. Um, she's she was a she had a couple of guest spots on Ozark. Um, but again, the way that they shot it, I didn't feel like really showcased the fact that she, you know, she uses a wheelchair. It's great. Um, but we're getting there. I, I think we're starting to see a change in the way that cinema depicts disability. You think about 2020 with Crip Camp and, uh, and then CODA last year and CODA won Best Picture. And Crip Camp was such a great film. And what I, what I loved about it that I don't think anybody else noticed, and it's the only reason I watched the Oscars that year. I mean, I was definitely hoping that it would win Best Picture. It should have. Mm -hmm. But it was the first time that the Oscar stage had a ramp built for it. Because <laughs> it is. You're walking up the stairs. Always. Always with the stairs, always with the stairs, Hollywood and the stairs. So this is the first time, 2021, the first time that we actually see, I guess it would have been 2020, it would have been this year. This, uh, no, 2021 for Crip Camp. That's the first time that we see a ramp up to the stage. So we have a long way to go in film and we have a long way to go to tell authentic stories about disability, but we're seeing those. Um, and we're seeing filmmakers who are doing some absolutely extraordinary stuff. Um, and they're out there and we have actors who have disabilities who want those roles. I mean, if we think about it, 26% of the population has some type of a disability self-reported why aren't we seeing that on the silver screen? We need to be. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I hope that would be the voice that I can potentially um, bring to the forefront. If not my own, then the voices of those honest depictions of honest people um, 
who look like us. Well, we're going to have to bring you back, Stan, because this seems like a story that needs to be updated. So thank you for joining us today, but we will most definitely have you back to talk about more in the film, more disability in film, more truth in film, and more just people in film. I mean, it might be that we're separating the person from the disability, which sounds incomprehensible. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you again. Likewise. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe work on your mustache for the next time. I'm telling you, it's, uh, it's a golden ticket. That would be a, a that would be a bit of work for me. I will I'll have to do it. Mine's a little bit more salt than pepper right now. So it's uh, maybe I'm getting up to Sam Shepard though. Is that or Sam Elliott? Sorry. That's exactly right. Yeah, the Sam Elliott. His is his is very salty as well. It's the gold standard. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope that you've enjoyed it. We've had a great time. Please, the greatest compliment that you can pay us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in. When this becomes a traditional podcast, please like us, please follow us, and we will do our best to bring you great stories and great people. We'll see you next week. <laughs>